Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter schiff show today's podcast was recorded yesterday if you want to listen to my podcasts commercial free the day that i record them go to shiftradio.com premium it only costs five dollars a month today's podcast is sponsored by mint mobile cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month and for a limited time buy any three month mint mobile plan and get another three months free at mintmobile.com gold Well, we're two days into the trading week, and so far, it doesn't really look like Santa Claus is coming to town, although I still think there's a good chance that St. Nick is going to show up with the Santa Claus rally, but again, I don't expect this rally to have too much behind it, meaning I don't look for much in the way of upside, but I do think there's a good chance that we're going to do another short squeeze before the next leg lower, which I think will happen in January, if not even before the end of December. So to the extent that we get this Santa Claus rally, you don't want to buy it. In fact, you don't even want to buy in anticipation of the rally because it may not even happen and you're going to be left with coal in your stockings. What got me thinking that we could have this Santa Claus rally was the way the market reacted to Powell's speech last week, where despite the Fed chairman delivering a hawkish speech, the market just shrugged it off anyway. Well, what got the sell-off started on Monday, and then some follow-through again today, were some more statements from some Fed guys about the prospects 
of the Fed having to go higher for longer when it comes to interest rates. And in fact, that point got hammered home yesterday with the release of some economic data that was actually stronger than the markets had been anticipating. First of all, we got the Chicago PMI for November. And this one wasn't necessarily a beat because I'm not even sure what they were looking for. But the index came out at 46.4 and the service index came out at 46.2. Now, that one was actually a slight miss because they were expecting 46.3. But again, anything below 50 represents contraction. So regardless of what investors were expecting, that was definitely a weak economic number. But the surprise came when we got the ISM Services Index for November, which was supposed to come in at 53.5, which would have been a decline from the 54.4 from the prior month. And instead, it came out at 56.5. So instead of going down, it went up. And not only did it go up, it was above the upper end of the consensus range, which went from 51.5 to 56. So this was definitely a stronger data point than the markets had been expecting. We also got a beat on October factory orders, which were supposed to rise by 0.7, and that would have been an increase of the 0.3 in the prior month. But instead, we had an increase of 1%, and so that too was a beat. And that was a one-two punch, because as soon as these numbers came out, the S&P futures sold off sharply, and they never recovered. Gold dumped. I think on the day, gold was down about $30. All of the losses came as a result of that release. And the idea that this strong economic data is going to prevent the Fed from recognizing that the inflation threat has subsided, and it's going to result in the Fed making a mistake and raising rates too much or leaving them too high too long and causing this unnecessary recession. And stocks are getting hurt for a couple of reasons based on that. One, of course, the higher interest rates are automatically a negative for stock market prices because of the impact on valuations, because the higher the rate is, the lower the discounted present value of future earnings, which is what stocks represent. But also, if the Fed causes this unnecessary recession, that will depress earnings. And so stocks have a lower value when they have lower earnings. And of course, corporations have a lot of debt. And so higher interest rates directly subtract from earnings by running up the interest expense. So all of this is scaring the stock market. But of course, the reality is we're already in recession and we don't have a strong economy. Yes, every once in a while, we're going to get some data that comes out stronger than expected, but most of the data is weaker than expected. And even the data that is stronger than expected, like the most recent non-farm payrolls report, and I went over this on the podcast, but all of the strength is superficial. Look beneath the surface and the reality is weakness. You know, it reminds me of Sam Bankman-Fried. I mean, we've got a Sam Bankman-Fried economy. We've got a Sam Bankman-Fried job market. Because if anyone had bothered to look beneath the surface of what was an obvious fraud, his whole empire would have been revealed as a scam. 
Everybody just accepted the fact that this guy was worth close to $30 billion and that he had all the money to do everything he was doing. Nobody bothered to question how it was possible that this guy could possibly have so much money based on the business that he claimed to have. Nobody really looked beneath the surface and nobody questioned some of the ridiculous statements that he was making and the self-serving nature of a lot of the companies that he was rescuing. He was basically rescuing himself. He was probably trying to prevent bankruptcies of other crypto companies that were involved with FTX from revealing the underlying problems at FTX. But the same thing is true with respect to the U.S. economy or the labor markets. Don't accept the numbers at face value. Dig a little deeper and look at what's actually happening. Because if you do that with the jobs numbers, as I've been doing on this podcast, the jobs market isn't strong. The jobs market is weak. And the risk that everybody is worrying about is once again the wrong risk. It's not that the Fed is going to raise rates too much. It's that they're not going to raise them enough. It's that they're going to pivot too quickly. It's not that the Fed is going to mistakenly believe that the economy is strong and then to overestimate how high inflation will be. It's the weak economy that's going to cause inflation to be higher because as the economy weakens, production will decline, but money printing will expand. In fact, at some point, the Fed will pivot in response to a much weaker economy than it expected. And that's when the dollar is really going to tank. And that's when consumer prices are really going to take off. The inflation that we're experiencing now is going to kick into a much higher gear during the next economic downturn. That's what nobody understands. Everybody just assumes that when the economy weakens, so too will inflation. No, the weakening economy is going to strengthen inflation because inflation is the expansion of the money supply. And the weaker the economy gets, the more the Fed is going to expand the money supply to try to stimulate it. And as the return of quantitative easing causes a mass exodus out of the U.S. dollar from foreign central banks and private holders, then the falling dollar is going to push consumer prices up dramatically, also increasing the size of our trade deficits and our current account deficits, creating a self-perpetuating spiral of inflation and economic weakness. But getting back to what happened in the stock market these past couple of days as a result of this stronger-than-expected data that came out on Monday. The Dow is now down about 830 points in two days. That's a 2.4% drop so far this week. Now, for the month of December, which includes another two days, it's down 2.9%. S&P 500 is faring even worse It's down 3.2% in the last two days, and it's now down 3.4% for the four days of December. This is the fourth consecutive day that the S&P is down. So it's been down every trading day of the month so far. The NASDAQ doing even worse, down 3.7% this week, 4% this month. And if you look at the more speculative names, 
in the NASDAQ, the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation Fund. That's down 9.3% this week alone. It's big as holding Tesla down 7.7% on the week. Now, the gold stocks are also down. Gold stocks are down 3.6% so far this week. But for the four days of the month, they're barely down. The decline is less than 1% on the GDX. Gold itself is down 1.4% in the past couple of days. Silver down about 4%. But on the month, silver is basically flat. So most of its gains, it has retained. In fact, the stock market has given up all of the gains since Powell's speech last week where the markets rose in the face of his hawkish comments, but the gold stocks have not. In fact, the gold stocks are still up about 6% from where they were before that speech was given. So despite the big drop over the last two days, we still see a lot of strength in the gold stocks. And I expect that to continue. Remember, if we get a year-end rally in gold stocks, the big difference between a gold stock rally and a regular stock rally is that the gold stock rally is for real. This is a bull market. This is not a head fake. This is not a sucker rally. This is not short covering. This is new longs coming into the market. This, I believe, is a massive bull market that is just in its infancy. And at the same time, gold is in a new bull market. The U.S. dollar is in a new bear market. In fact, the dollar made new lows and gold made new highs on Sunday night. Before the U.S. market opened up, we had gold up about $10, $11. It was close to 1810 I believe, on Sunday night before the reversal. As I'm recording this podcast Tuesday evening, gold's about 1771 back below 1800 but it's held on to most of its gains. Silver's still trading above 22 it's 22.17. The dollar index is now back above the 105 handle, but on Sunday night, it was very close to breaking below 104. I think we got down to about 104.2 before we had the rally on Monday and then some follow through on Tuesday. But the dollar decline to me still looks like it had legs. I don't think we're just going to make one move below 105. I think the next time we go below 105, we may stay below 105. And I think the same thing could be said about gold. Once it gets back above 1800, 1800 may be the new floor rather than the ceiling. And by the way, there's a lot of people out there that are talking about Bitcoin building a floor at 1700 because Bitcoin has been trading at around 1700. And even though the NASDAQ has dropped quite a bit over the last couple of days, Bitcoin has kind of traded sideways, and that's caused a lot of people to claim, aha, we found support. This is a bottom. Remember, this is the way Bitcoin has been falling pretty much the entirety of the bear market ever since it was just under 70,000. Bitcoin makes a move down, and then it consolidates those losses before it takes another move down. But every time it consolidates its losses, people are saying it's forming a bottom. It's not. It's building a trap door, and then the market falls through it. This is a staircase down, and every time Bitcoin stops falling, it's simply resting on a landing, getting ready for the next leg lower, which is what's about to happen. It's interesting that we haven't really had 
a major one-day meltdown in Bitcoin. We've had a lot of those big crashes in the past. Most of those big crashes happened on the way up. And what those declines did is they shook people out, but they gave people an opportunity to buy for the next move to new highs. But we haven't had any of those big, scary declines during this bear market. Why? Because bear markets don't want to shake anybody out. They want to keep everybody in. They want to give people a lot of false hope that the bear market is over. Remember, bear markets slide a slope of hope. And if there were more spectacular one-day crashes, well, the hope might be dashed. But right now, the Bitcoin hodlers are kind of like the frog being boiled slowly in a pot of oil. He doesn't realize he's being boiled, and so he doesn't jump out. That's what people should be doing. In fact, even Jim Cramer on his most recent uh, television show said that everybody in crypto should get out. He had been encouraging people at one point to get into crypto. Pretty much everybody on CNBC did that. But at least now Kramer has got the good sense to tell people to get out. In fact, Jamie Dimon was on CNBC today talking about Bitcoin, criticizing CNBC for covering it so much, just like I've been doing, although not quite as sharp a criticism as mine. He referred to Bitcoin as a sideshow, and he compared Bitcoin to pet rocks, which, if anything, sells pet rocks short because pet rocks actually have some utility. You can take a pet rock and you could use it as a paperweight. If it's heavy, I suppose, a large enough rock, you could use it as a doorstop. You could use it as ammo for your slingshot. You could take a pet rock and you could put it on the bottom of a fish tank as a decoration. Or if you have three pet rocks, you could juggle them. But what can you do with Bitcoin? Doesn't matter how many you have, you can't do anything with them. Now, yes, I know people are always going to say, Peter, I can send my Bitcoin to somebody else. I can send it instantly. I can transfer it. Yes, but what are you transferring? You're transferring nothing. What can the recipient of your Bitcoin do when he gets it? Nothing. All he can do is transfer it to somebody else. It's a digital hot potato, but whoever gets stuck with it last loses. And by the way, I tweeted about this today. And of course, immediately, Bitcoiners are on my Twitter saying that everything I'm saying about a pet rock, I can say about gold, that there's no difference between rocks and gold, that all I could do with gold is use it as a paperweight or a doorstop, which shows you how little Bitcoiners know about actual money, about gold, because gold is far more useful than a rock. Yes, you could use gold as a paperweight, but it would be pretty foolish to use something that valuable to do a job that a rock could do. Because the things that gold could do, like conduct electricity or be used to make jewelry or in medicine or in dentistry or in aerospace, you can't use rocks to do that. Yes, you could use gold as a doorstop, but you can't use a rock to conduct electricity. So gold has far more uses that are far more valuable than the uses of rocks. Meanwhile, there's rocks everywhere. You don't have to buy a rock. Just go into your backyard. They're all over the place. So to the extent that there is a use for rocks, and there are, there's plenty of rocks to go around. So they're not going to be as valuable as gold because gold can be used for so many more things than rocks. And there's hardly any gold around. 
Very few people have gold in their backyards. But my point is that the $1,700 level for Bitcoin is not a new floor being formed. It's likely the next ceiling being formed. And we're going to have another leg lower. And again, I'm sure that after we drop, maybe this time to around 15000 or so, maybe we'll trade sideways again before the next leg lower. And every time we make another leg lower, you have more people convinced that that low is the bottom and they're looking for Bitcoin to shoot to the moon. In the meantime, it's crashing back down to earth. But the moonshot that they will be missing is the one that's going to take place in real gold and to an even greater extent in silver. If Bitcoiners want a supercharged version of gold, they should be buying silver, not Bitcoin, because I think silver is even better positioned than gold to deliver spectacular returns as the world's population not only exits fiat currencies, but fiat cryptocurrencies as well, including Bitcoin. This holiday season, the best deal in wireless can only be found at Mint Mobile. Right now, when you switch to Mint Mobile and buy a three-month plan, you'll get another three months absolutely free. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order and activate from home with ESIM while saving tons on phone plans starting at just 15 bucks a month. Mint Mobile already offered a great deal, but now with this holiday promotion, there's no better time to make the switch. Just think about all the money you could be saving by making this switch, or all the money your friends or family could be saving if you gift them Mint Mobile this holiday season. This is Mint Mobile's best offer in years. For a limited time, buy any three-month plan and get another three months absolutely free by going online only with ESIM and eliminating the traditional cost of retail. Mint Mobile passes significant savings directly to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and switch easily and effortlessly with ESIM. Or if you need a new device. For a limited time, you can get six months of free service when you buy a selected device and plan. For a limited time, buy any three-month Mint Mobile plan and get another three months absolutely free by going to mintmobile.com slash gold. That's mintmobile.com slash gold. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gold. One of the worst performing stocks on the day was Meta, formerly Facebook, which dropped 6.8% today. It's now down 7.6% over the past two days. And the news that sent Meta shares tumbling is that the EU is looking at doing something to somehow limit Meta's ability to gather information from its users and then make it available to advertisers so that it can offer better targeted ads to its advertisers, which helps justify the expense, and it makes it possible for far more companies to advertise their products when they don't have to pay to show the ads to people who likely have very little to no interest in their products. Now, there are a lot of people who look at this as an invasion of privacy, and a lot of the politicians like to grandstand on that issue as if they really cared about protecting privacy. Because when it comes to government, there's no privacy at all. Privacy is now a four-letter word. You're not allowed to have anything private from government. But of course, that's where privacy is most important, is keeping things private from government. 
Now, I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, Peter, but why would you want to keep things private from government? They're the good guys. They're just going to use that private information to get criminals. No, the government aren't the good guys. Sometimes there's good guys in government, but oftentimes there are bad people in government. And the problem with having bad people in government is they can do a lot of harm because government has a lot of power. And there's an old saying from Lord Acton, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And a lot of politicians become absolutely corrupted by government power. And so you don't want the government having so much information on citizens because they can misuse that information. They can target their political opponents and they can find out who their opponents are by accessing this data. That's where I value privacy. It's the governments that are a major threat to privacy, not the free market. What harm could Facebook do to its users by sharing information about them with their advertisers? The worst thing that happens is the Facebook user sees ads that are actually more relevant to their lives and may actually find out about goods or services that they may actually be interested in, that they may actually want to buy. So in other words, advertising can be a service. It's actually part of the content rather than a nuisance because everybody who's on Facebook is going to see ads because you don't pay to use Facebook. Facebook has to make money to provide a free service to its customers. Well, where does it get the money? From its advertisers. And so if you're using Facebook, you're going to see ads. And as far as I'm concerned, I would rather see ads that are relevant to my life that may make me aware of a product or a service that I didn't know about that I actually want that could make my life better. That to me is a much better experience than having to see a bunch of ads for goods and services that I couldn't care less about and that I'm never going to buy. That's just a bunch of noise. The real value here for Facebook is that a lot of companies can only afford to advertise because of the targeted nature of their ads, because they're not paying to reach an audience that's not going to care about their product. Whenever somebody is advertising, they always want to gear their ads to the audience. For example, if you're watching football, you're not going to see a bunch of tampon commercials. Why? Well, because the tampon makers don't want to waste their money advertising to a bunch of guys watching football. You're going to see a lot of beer ads on football games. You're going to see a lot of truck ads on football games. Why? Because guys that watch football drink beer and drive trucks. Now, maybe if you're watching a daytime soap opera, you might see some tampon ads because there you have a higher concentration of a female audience. And of course, they're going to buy those products. The internet allows advertisers to even better target their ads. And of course, when the politicians talk about targeting, like, oh, the consumer is being targeted. It's not like it's a target, like they're shooting at you and they're going to hurt you because they've targeted you for execution. No, they're targeting you so they can show you ads that you might actually like that may actually help bring value into your life. For example, I'm not into fly fishing. I don't know why I'm thinking about fly fishing. It just came to my mind. But the population of fly fishers 
is very small. So if I have, let's say, a new fly fishing reel and I want to advertise it, I'm not going to advertise it on a football game because even though a lot of men fly fish, probably a very small percentage of an audience for a football game are fly fishermen. And so I would have to overpay for that ad. And so I'm not going to do it. But if I can go to Facebook and I can buy an ad and Facebook says, hey, we're just going to show this ad to people who like to fly fish. Now, how does Facebook know who likes to fly fish? Because a network can't do that with television. They have no idea who's watching beyond broader demographics that they get like male, female, age groups or things like that. They can't be so narrow, but Facebook can because they can look at all the content that people on their sites have. And if you're into fly fishing, well, based on what's on your Facebook page, they know that. They see the pictures of fish. They can see that you're following fly fishing sites. They can read about the fly fishing weekend that you wrote about. They can see that you clicked on other ads regarding fly fishing equipment. And so then they can go to the company that's making this new fly fishing reel and say, yeah, we will let you advertise your fly fishing wheel and we're only going to charge you for the ads that are seen by fly fishermen who may in fact actually buy your product. So now it's a win for everybody. It's a win for the company that is making this fly fishing reel because it can afford those advertisements because it's not being forced to advertise to people who are never going to buy their product. But if I happen to be a fly fisherman and then all of a sudden I'm seeing an ad on this brand new fly fishing reel, hey, that's interesting to me. Maybe that reel could do something that the reel that I have can't, or maybe my reel just broke and now I need a new one. Oh, great. I'll buy this one. There is nothing bad about what Facebook is doing. To me, the only risk is that the information that they're compiling falls into the hands of government because it's government that could use that information against me. Not because I'm doing anything wrong. It's because I'm afraid that government will do something wrong. And you never know what innocent thing that you're doing may somehow get you incriminated in the eyes of some corrupt politician. So that's what I'm against. I'm against the government getting this information from the internet companies. I have no fear about advertisers getting it because all advertisers can do is show me an ad. They can't force me to buy any of the products they're advertising. I have to like the product and voluntarily give them my money in exchange for their product. And I would not make that voluntary exchange unless it benefited me to do so. But government is not about volunteerism. It's about force. And so if government gets my personal information from Facebook, then government could actually use that information to harm me in ways that no private company ever could. That is the irony of this whole thing. The government, which is claiming to be the protector of privacy, is the biggest threat to privacy. While I'm on the topic of government, President Biden addressed the nation today delivering a speech from a Taiwan semiconductor plant in Arizona. The president was there to announce that Taiwan Semiconductor is now going to be building another semiconductor plant in Arizona. And according to Joe Biden, this means that U.S. manufacturing is back. Well, first of all, apart from the fact that Taiwan Semiconductor 
is not an American company. It's a Taiwanese company. The name gives that away. But sure, the plant that this foreign company is building is on American soil, and it will employ American workers, but it hardly represents a comeback of American manufacturing. In fact, one of the things Biden was bragging about during his speech was all of these manufacturing jobs that have been created since he became president. I don't think any manufacturing jobs have been created since Biden became president. What happened was manufacturing workers who were temporarily laid off before Biden was president were recalled to their jobs after Biden became president. So all these workers didn't get new jobs. They returned to the jobs that they already had before Biden was president. Obviously, if we lock down the country due to COVID and all these companies that were manufacturing had to shut down their plants and furlough their workers, when the economy reopens and those temporarily laid off workers are recalled to the jobs they already had, you can't claim credit for creating manufacturing jobs. But that is exactly what Joe Biden is doing. In fact, if you look at the jobs report from last week, hardly any of the jobs that were created were manufacturing jobs. Manufacturing isn't back at all. In fact, that's why if you look at the last merchandise trade figures, our exports went down because we're manufacturing fewer products that we can export. In fact, Biden himself pointed out that America invented the semiconductor, that we used to be the world's biggest maker of these chips. But now, for some bizarre reason, we're only producing 10% of the world's semiconductors. Biden pointed out that something happened. And as a result of this thing that happened, all of this production moved offshore. It's not just some random unknown event that happened. What happened was government. Government happened. Manufacturing didn't just leave the United States. The U.S. government chased it out. It was high taxes and excessive regulation that made U.S. manufacturing globally uncompetitive. And so in order to survive, companies had no choice but to move their production offshore. That's what government did. And the way to reverse this process is not to introduce government subsidies, which is what we have now. You have the government now subsidizing an industry that it helped cripple. That's not the way to bring it back. All you're going to do by giving government subsidies to non-competitive sectors is to make sure they never become competitive because now they rely on the government subsidy. But who covers the cost of that subsidy? It's the American people. They have to pay for it either through higher taxes or through higher inflation. What would be much better if we lowered taxes and repealed regulations so those industries can come back on their own, so they can be competitive again and not a burden on society, but be a benefit to society. And of course, eventually, a lot of these subsidies will eventually be withdrawn and now the companies that became addicted to those subsidies won't be able to survive without them. This is typical for government cripples an industry and then comes back with a crutch and claims, see, this is how we're going to fix it. Well, if the industry is hobbling along on government crutches, 
it's never going to be as vibrant as if it were able to walk on its own legs. And the only way to have self-sustaining industries is by removing the taxes and the regulation that crippled the industries in the first place. In fact, one of the things that Biden praised during his speech was labor unions. Well, labor unions are one of the reasons that so many American manufacturers became uncompetitive. It wasn't just high taxes and excessive regulation. It was excessively high labor costs that were a direct result of labor unions that forced companies to pay workers far in excess of their actual productivity. There were so many rules and requirements that labor unions imposed on American employers that they rendered those employers unproductive. That's why so many union jobs disappeared because so many unions destroyed their employers and therefore their own jobs. That's one of the reasons that America became a service sector economy is because the labor unions were not nearly as strong in the service sector as they were in the manufacturing sector. So when the labor unions destroyed all the manufacturing jobs, those workers who lost manufacturing jobs ended up taking service sector jobs. And so they went from union workers to non-union workers. But of course, the manufacturing jobs that the labor unions destroyed were much higher paying than the low-paying service sector jobs those displaced manufacturing workers were forced to accept. But again, the real reason that those manufacturing jobs paid so much money was not because of the labor unions. It was because of the high productivity associated with those jobs, because the employers provided their workers with tools that made those workers much more productive and enabled them to earn more money. It's just that the labor unions tried to force employers to pay in excess of that labor productivity, and they took good, high-paying jobs and made them too costly for the employers. As a result, many of those employers went out of business because they were no longer globally competitive, and many that remained in business outsourced their manufacturing to other countries where they weren't being extorted by labor unions and they weren't burdened by high taxation and excessive regulation. And while I'm on the topic of high taxes and excessive regulation, the Georgia Senate runoff election is taking place today. In fact, as I'm recording this podcast, the polls are now closing, and it's pretty clear that the Democratic incumbent is going to retain this seat. And so the Democrats are actually going to gain one seat in the United States Senate And so instead of a 50-50 split where you have the vice president breaking the ties, it's going to be 51-49 majority for the Democrats, which means they will control the committees. They won't have to share power with the Republicans. Now, thankfully, the Republicans didn't win the House of Representatives. And so Biden and the Democrats will have a difficult time getting their legislation through the United States Congress but it will certainly make it easier to get stuff done in the Senate. And it means that in order to get something through the Senate, the Democrats don't have to have every single senator on board. So a guy like Joe Manchin won't have quite as much power because even without Manchin, with the vice president's vote, they can still get enough votes to get things through. Of course, the most frustrating part about the whole thing is that had the libertarian candidate not been on the ballot, I'm confident 
that Herschel Walker would have won the original election. That's because the margin of victory in the original election was less than the number of votes that were received by the Libertarian. And I think the vast majority of those votes would have gone to Herschel Walker had the Libertarian candidate not been on the ballot, because I'm sure he was most of their second choice. The problem with this runoff election, though, is that even though Herschel Walker doesn't have to worry about losing votes to the Libertarian candidate, he also isn't able to ride on the coattails of a very popular incumbent Republican governor who's running for re-election on the same ballot. And so those Libertarian voters who went to the polls in Georgia and voted for less government ended up helping to elect the candidate who wanted the most government. And even worse, they ended up giving the Democrats a lot more power in the United States Senate than would have been the case had those Libertarians simply held their noses and voted Republican.